EMRC, EMRC, this is County Medic 12 requesting a consult with the University of Maryland. Okay, County 12, switch to Med 4, Med 4. Copy, switching to Med 4. What's up, everyone? It's James and Jeannie from the Med4 Podcast. I know everyone has been super busy with COVID-related things, and we're no different. Now that things are starting to slow down, we're getting back to normal, and we're looking forward to kicking out some exciting information for everyone. Hell yeah, and during these COVID times, Zoom has become our best friend. So we have a bunch of lectures from our favorite docs and medics that we're planning on releasing on a consistent basis. So also remember that you can log in, if you're a Maryland clinician, to the MIMS Online Learning Center to get continuing education credit. Keep in mind, there might be a delay between the release of our podcast on our website and when it is available online at the MIMS website. So check routinely so that you can get credit for the courses. To get us started, this next lecture was delivered by Dr. Chismark. So sit back, dial in, and enjoy. Um, so anyway, without further ado, one of the things I wanted to, to cover with you this morning is an evidence-based approach to trauma. We started to talk about this a little bit at the end of the ketamine discussion um, but I entitled the talk, Don't Pop the Clot, um, and you'll see why here in just a few slides. Um, but obviously, I think it's apparent that um, one of our basic tenets in trauma management is to try and gain control of the bleeding, and how we do that is uh, what we'll largely discuss today. So if I can advance my slides, there we go. Disclosures, I'm a state employee, no disclosures there. Um, objectives today um, are to cover a systematic approach um, to assessment and resuscitation, particularly focusing on the latest evidence um, in the following three areas. First one is um, resuscitation in the setting of shock. Uh, the second one is ventilation, how, what our approach to ventilation should be for traumatically injured patients. And the third are some emerging approaches and therapies that I think you'll be seeing um, coming your way very soon. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the benefits and, and risks with those. So um, everyone's probably been on this, this sort of a car accident, uh, MVC. Um, you know, you have high speed blunt, blunt trauma, right? Um, this is a 50 year old, I'll tell you, this is a case that I was on, a 50 year old man with multiple pain complaints, um, among them chest pain, belly pain. Um, he was alert times three. Um, may have had a traumatic brain injury, but at least was talking to us at the start here. So just to introduce this concept, we've got this 50-year-old guy. These are his vital signs. Um, and I know we can't be as interactive as we'd probably like to be. Um, but I, I will ask, um, how many are concerned with a single isolated BP um, of 80 over 50? Is anybody concerned about that? You can just kind of shake your head, yes or no. So I'm seeing some yeses, seeing some no's scrolling through here. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. The single isolated BP reading. So he's tacky. His heart rate's 110. His blood pressure is 100 over 60. When we repeat it, um, the respirations are 20. Now keep in mind, respirations of 20 actually means that he is a little tachypnic, that he is breathing a little bit fast. So if that's correct and they weren't fudging the numbers, um, respiratory rate of 20 is actually a little bit fast. Um, sat of 90, 92%. So just kind of borderline on room air. We do our ABCDE, our primary survey. We see his airways intact. Um, we hear breath sounds on both sides and he's got pulses in all extremities. He's moving all extremities. So relatively unremarkable uh, primary survey so far. And then we do our E, 
right? E stands for exposure. And we see this. So this is um, a seatbelt sign for those that have not seen it. Um, and the reason we care about the seatbelt sign is that there's a higher chance of delayed um, injuries, particularly to the bowel and the mesentery, which is that, that kind of gooey stuff that holds the bowel together. So a seatbelt sign is something that can be missed if we're not exposing our patients. So I put this in here to remind me um, to, to make sure that we talk about that piece. So your systematic assessment, this is review for all of you, um, should consist of your primary survey, ABCDE, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure, followed by a secondary survey, which is essentially just doing DCAP BTLS from head to toe. We all know and love that so well from our EMT training way back when. Um, one thing that we frequently um, don't harp on enough is reevaluation, right? So these patients can change with time. Nobody's static. Um, so reevaluating every five or 15 minutes, depending on how stable we think this person is, and then getting the person to definitive care. So again, this is, this is review. Um, and, and again, hopefully with the um, decreased emphasis on backboards, we're at least a little more liberal with C-spine, with applying a C-spine collar, if the patient has neck pain or neck tenderness without putting them on, a, on a, you know, a whole long spine board if they really don't need it. If their GCS is 15, they're moving all extremities and all they have is isolated neck pain, a C collar without a board is, is perfectly fine. And certainly no standing takedowns. Although, believe it or not, those are still happening statewide. I do look at those and standing takedowns, despite all the education are still happening. Not in Anne Arundel County, but in other, other, other places. So again, just by way of review, Stick to the basics first. Um, oral and nasal airway is just fine, unless obviously the patient has a fa facial fracture and then you wanna stick with the oral airway. Um, and then adjusting the C um, addressing the C-spine early on. So for breathing, our critical interventions on scene, um, again, we wanna get these patients to definitive care, but what matters is that we ventilate them if they're ventilating poorly and that we decompress any tension pneumothorax. So tension pneumothorax, just to keep in mind is more than just absent breath sounds. It's absent breath sounds in the setting of hemodynamic changes. So they become hypotensive. Um, tracheal shift is, is a very late finding as, as I'm sure all of you are aware, but um, more than just absent breath sounds, they have absent breath sounds and also uh, begin to have some hemodynamic decompensation as well. Um, one of the things that I know uh, you, many of you have taken TECC or TCCC, um, and, and chest seals are becoming more and more available. So going ahead and putting a chest seal on an open wound is something we want to address very early on. If you don't have a chest seal available to you, obviously using the same method, the occlusive dressing, which can be burped if, if needed, but the chest seal is really the preferred uh, method here. Um, so basic stop the bleeding, some changes we made to the protocol this past year. Um, we're, and many of you learned this already, so it's not new, but the explicit um, line in there about wound packing. So if you have a, a wound that's on the torso or somewhere you can't put a tourniquet, first step should be direct pressure followed by wound packing. And you want to, again, use a sterile Curlex gauze. If you have hemostatic gauze available to you, even better. If you're at the roadside and all you've got available to you is your t-shirt, better than letting the patient hemorrhage out. 
And then obviously with, with extremities or places, you can place a tourniquet. If you can't get control with direct pressure or wound packing, um, placing a tourniquet early on to prevent hemorrhage is important. Um, we really kind of took the elevation out of it. And that was based on national documents that said elevating the extremity really doesn't do much as far as bleeding control. We're gonna talk a lot about IV fluids. Should we do them? Should we not do them? If we do them, how much IV fluid should we give? So I'll save that for a little bit. And then D&E, obviously we wanna use spinal motion restriction wisely. Um, we don't wanna just backboard everybody. Um, certainly going through that stepwise, assessing for any neuro deficit. They don't have midline tenderness. They don't have a neuro deficit. They're walking around at the scene. We may need a C collar, but not necessarily a long board. And then something that we forget about, but particularly important around this time of the year is prevent hypothermia. So if you're cold, you're not gonna clot well. So again, the title of the lecture or presentation, lecture is a bad word, title of the presentation is don't pop the clot. Well, in order to get the clot to begin with, we can't have you be in freezing cold. So remember to warm the patient up, warm blankets, turn the heat on until you, you're so hot, you're sweating through your job shirt. Um, so most importantly, um, we've covered kind of a review I wanna spend the next several minutes talking to you about hemorrhagic shock. So hemorrhagic shock, the death rate from hemorrhagic shock is around 20 to 30% still. And this is the leading cause of preventable death in the trauma patient. Um, so primary cause of preventable death is hemorrhagic shock. This is like one of those great questions to ask on a uh, board exam or a test. It represents over 30,000 preventable deaths per year in the United States, even with all the emphasis that we placed on it. So we still have some room to, some room to go here. So what was the old way, right? You learned um, to start two large bore IVs and give them IV fluid until their blood turned into this, into Kool-Aid, right? So you wanted to make sure you filled them up with fluid until they were pink, um, literally until you had pink stuff coming out. And I'm going to tell you, you know, um, uh, spoiler alert, that that uh, has turned out to not, not be the right approach and has really led to an, um, difficulty with the body forming clots, leading to more and more hemorrhagic shock. So we don't want to do Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid's out. Um, and I call this the new way, um, but as I'll show you, some of these articles go back to the 1940s. Um, Many of you are aware you took the protocol update that limited IV fluid resuscitation is in. Uh, we wanna limit that amount of crystalloid or fluid we're giving to people to just maintain a perfusing blood pressure to the head. Uh, so systolic of 90 is just fine in, in adults. We don't wanna just fill them up with fluid. We're gonna talk about some of the newer therapies and where they are in development phase, both plasma, uh, packed red blood cells, uh, whole blood, um, which is something that's, that's really taken off. And then the evidence, there's some evidence for and against um, this medicine called tranexamic acid or TXA. So we'll go through each one of those as well. Um, but as I was saying before, this idea of permissive hypotension, so only giving the patient as much fluid as they need to perfuse their head, um, goes back to World War I, actually. Um, so this is not terribly new. There's literature that goes all the way back to World War I. This paper in particular was a meta-analysis that looked at multiple studies. They looked at 30-day mortality, um, so the number of people that died at 30 days, and also the number of people that died in the hospital. 
They also looked at how much, um, you know, how many of the patients needed blood products. So what they found in this meta-analysis is, uh, so there are several papers. Um, they found essentially that maintaining a lower blood pressure goal of 90 to 100, um, in some cases, as you see in the first paper, had a mortality benefit. Um, this was a group of penetrating trauma patients. Uh, Dutton et al. Is, are, are our patients from Maryland. Dutton was an anesthesiologist at shock trauma, um, again, using a target blood pressure of greater than 100 versus less than 100 did not have any impact on mortality. Um, another study again in 2015 looked at blunt and penetrating trauma patients, um, non-significant difference in mortality. And there are multiple, multiple papers, but I'll summarize by saying that a restrictive fluid strategy that minimizes dilution of the blood, minimizes coagulopathy. So that coagulopathy is just disordered clotting. Um, is, pro is the most appropriate approach for us to take. We wanna take a balanced approach and, and try to achieve hemostasis, try to achieve blood clotting until we can get them to surgery and, or IR and, and get an anatomic uh, repair achieved. And we should be able to tolerate a lower blood pressure, systolic of 90 to 100 versus the traditional 120 over 80 or 130 over 80 or the Kool-Aid target that we used to tolerate. There is an exception, and this is pulled right out of the protocol. Um, in head injury, um, we do it, and Jimmy alluded to this a little bit before, um, we do want that blood pressure to be just a little bit higher if we, if we know we have a patient with head injury, as opposed to the 90 um, that I was talking about before. We'd like to see them up around 110 just to make sure we're perfusing the brain if we have a, a known or suspected head injury there. So um, many of you have heard in different systems about um, not just crystalloid, not just giving fluid, but also giving plasma. Um, so plasma contains the clotting factors the, that the body needs to form clots. So this group looked at this. Um, this is from July of 2018. And they, they said essentially is plasma safe and effective for pre-hospital patients that are at risk for hemorrhagic shock and looked at the mortality at 30 days. So they looked at over 500, just a little over 500 patients and randomized them into two groups. Um, one got plasma, one got the standard lactated ringers like we give, um, 18 to 90 years old. So the whole age range that they didn't restrict this to just old people or just young people. Um, inclusion criteria. So any episodes, if you remember back to the case, any episodes that were hypotensive in nature or severely hypotensive, or if their heart rate was above they said 108, but essentially above 110, they included them in this trial that they nicely called Pamper. And this is what their survival looked like. So the red line represents the patients that received plasma and the blue line represents standard care. So regular IV fluid and the bottom. So we're tracking them over time. This is moving over time. And you can see that there's a clear survival difference in this um, Again, I'll just refer you back to the population. This is not all trauma patients. These are patients who are incredibly sick trauma patients, at least these first two. The tachycardia piece could, you know, you could get an elevated heart rate from just about anything from just being shook up. But these hypotensive patients in particular were the ones who tended to have a survival difference between plasma versus standard care. And it makes sense, right? We're addressing their coagulopathy early on 
with pre-hospital plasma, and they had lower mortality at both 24 hours, which is what we generally as EMS own, and 30 days, which is what we EMS plus the hospital to some degree own. In, importantly, with blood transfusions of any kind of blood product, we always wanna look for, is there any increase in transfusion complication like fever or rash? Um, they didn't see it. Infection, um, they didn't see it, and they only saw a mild increase in, the, in allergic reactions here, which again, we can treat pretty easily with Benadryl and steroids or epinephrine if it, if it got severe. So overall, plasma is better than crystalloid. Shocker. So the same group did a secondary analysis of that trial. So they took the same group of patients and it turns out that it was standard for them to carry IV fluid, packed red blood cells, plasma, and, um, and there was another group that got both packed red blood cells and plasma, which is essentially is almost whole blood, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. And again, they looked at 30 day mortality. So what did they find? This one's not as colorful. So I'll just walk you through this one a little bit more slowly. Um, the solid line is packed red blood cells and plasma. So almost whole blood. The only thing this is missing is platelets. Um, so, but, but essentially this would be very almost akin to the blood that I would draw out of you if, we, if you were donating blood. Below that you have plasma, which is just the clotting factors without the oxygen carrying red blood cells. Below that, um, you have just the packed red blood cells, so no clotting factors. And then below that, you have crystalloid. So very clearly you see that, and, and this makes sense to me at least, if you're losing you know, whole blood, you're not just losing the packed red blood cells or just the plasma, you're losing blood, you know, and your blood doesn't separate uh, like oil and water. So it makes sense to give you back what you're losing. And so again, what they found, any blood product resuscitation was associated with better mortality than crystalloid alone. Uh, packed red blood cells and plasma both had similar reductions by themselves. So both acceptable interventions, but when you put them together, there was a synergy that led to an even greater reduction um, when the two were put together. So this leads many, um, and probably the biggest group is the San Antonio group, Many uh, nationwide to say, you know, why don't we start looking at whole blood transfusion in the field for selected trauma patients? You know, not every fender bender that comes along that has a heart rate of 110, but somebody who's really, you know, we, we look at them as Jimmy was saying, we want you to think. We think that this person, you think that this person is at risk um, or is in hemorrhagic shock. So um, it turns out this is not a new idea as well. Um, this was being done in Vietnam Obviously the challenges in Vietnam were they didn't have a way to screen for hepatitis C. They just called it non-A, non-B and had no idea why people got hepatitis. And we truly don't know whether or not HIV was a thing um, in Vietnam. That's just after Vietnam is when we started to see HIV emerge. So, but now again, with our capabilities, we're able to screen for both of those um, viral illnesses. So the San Antonio group um, which is a regional sort of consortium, looked at this in January of 2018. Um, they put this both in, um, they started it out in their helicopter system, then gradually expanded it to the ground. They put two units of blood um, and they used O positive blood um, <clears throat> and they put those on their helicopters. The one challenge with O positive blood is that it's a little bit, um, dicey to give that to women of childbearing age. 
So the risk of um, the risk is that you get a woman who is, um, you know, has a blood type that's negative and reacts to that positive blood with a subsequent pregnancy. But in this trial, again, they did not exclude women of childbearing age. And so this is one of those rock in a hard place kind of things that if women of childbearing age are out there, which they are driving cars, which they are, and they, you know, get into a car accident and they're dying of hemorrhagic shock, um, should we exclude them? And, and again, this group did not. O negative blood would be optimal, would be, you know, we'd love to have O negative blood. O negative blood is not incredibly easy to come by. Um, it, it's quite hard to come by, but this is what they used as far as their parameters um, for either penetrating or blunt. Um, again, they, they did everyone over the age of five, blood pressure less than 90, heart rate over 120, um, shock index, which is just the heart rate and the blood pressure together, uh, divided um, greater than one, uh, a pulse pressure. So the difference between the systolic and diastolic of less than 45. And then again, they had some other factors uh, further down here. I won't read these all off to you, but this is what they used to kind of decide whether somebody was in hemorrhagic shock or not. And I just like, the, I like this picture because this shows you um, the difference between whole blood in terms of volume, overall volume, and what you're giving the patient versus packed red blood cells and, and plasma. So I'll focus your attention. The upper left uh, um, picture there is just packed red blood cells. So this is what you would get, you know, if you had a GI bleed, you went into the hospital, um, we would give you packed red blood cells, um, you know, if your blood count were low enough to warrant uh, needing blood. Um, but again, in that case, you're losing blood gradually over time. Your body is making clotting factors back. We don't have to give you as much volume. The whole blood is on the right, almost looks like a dark purplish color. Um, and then at the bottom right, you see the whole blood on the right again, and the components on the left. So you have the platelets, the plasma, and the packed red blood cells um, that are right next to each other. And the reason why they started fractionating blood into different components is that there are some patients in the hospital that may just need clotting factors. You know, they have a clotting problem and they need clotting factors, or they just need platelets because their platelets are low or their blood counts are low. And so over time, it became a wiser use of resources for us to take that unit of whole blood and fractionate it out um, so that we were only giving you what you needed. But it turns out in trauma patients, they're losing whole blood. That's what they're actually losing, not individual components. And so I thought this was really neat. And this is something that um, we are, we're making progress toward, not, not quite at this level. Um, they've done a wonderful job with this where they have, um, they've even enrolled many of the men in fire and EMS to donate blood to be the donors. It turns out it's not a gender thing, but, but men have fewer antibodies in general. Um, and I'm speaking in general terms here. Um, they had them donate the blood, brought it to a, a site whether that was a helicopter base or then eventually to a ground base for two weeks. And then they rotated it back in. So the blood was not going to waste uh, back into a hospital or a facility. Cause really you don't want to go through all the trouble to have donated blood and then have it go bad um, and have it, have it go to waste. So this is just sort of a picture of where they distributed their blood. San Antonio is right in the middle there. Um, I think they pronounced this Behar or I don't think it's Bexar, but Behar County. Um, right there um, in the middle where Air Care 1 and Air Care 2 are. 
So again, they, they regionalized this, and this is a very large catchment area, um, almost 300 miles in, uh, in diameter. So the flight times are a little bit longer than ours, to say the least. And this was their preliminary publication uh, from this, again, the same group, the San Antonio group, where they cycle blood between helicopters, uh, the ground service, and then back into the trauma center. Challenge with blood is logistics. You've got to cold store it, and you've got to rapidly be able to warm it at the time that it's needed. At the time of this interim report, they'd used it on 25 adults and five kids, mostly motor vehicle collisions. And again, these are very sick people. The mortality rates were up to 36% in the adults. Um, and some of those patients, nine out of the 25 died before reaching a trauma center. Um, and, and many of these were in trauma, went into trauma arrest during EMS transport. So again, a, a very, very sick population. They did not have any transfusion reactions and their average airtime was much longer than ours. 37 minutes in the air um, is, is much longer than what our average time is here in, in Maryland. They did plan to expand it to um, within their ground units as well. But again, this was a little bit of a proof of concept um, and they're still, they're still enrolling patients and going to um, publish on their data as time goes on as well. So switching gears a little bit from whole blood to uh, TXA. TXA is, is a medication, it's a drug that is sort of the opposite of TPA is, is the best way I can have you think of it. So, you know, you bring a stroke in and they have a clot in their brain and we're trying to dissolve the clot. We give them TPA. If, if we have a, a patient, we wanna prevent the body from breaking down their clots, we give them TXA which makes sense. Again, easy to remember, you're kind of Xing out the pathway here between plasminogen and plasmin. TPA would accelerate this tissue plasminogen activator activates this pathway so that you get, um, you know, more plasmin and then breakdown. TXA is doing the opposite of TPA. It's usually given as a one gram loading dose and then a follow-up dose as an infusion over eight hours. This has been looked at in a variety of different papers, and I'm gonna go over some of these for you. So in the CRASH-2 trial, they enrolled, this is a massive trial, enrolled 20,000 adult trauma patients that were at risk of severe hemorrhage and looked at them within eight hours of their injury. And they randomized them. Uh, one group got a gram of TXA and one group got placebo. And then they looked at how many died and how many had complications, um, clotting complications like PE, or heart attack or stroke. So their mortality at 28 days in the TXA group was actually better, 14.5% um, versus 16. So not, not a, a tremendous survival advantage. Their number needed to treat was 67 patients, meaning that they had to give TXA to 67 people before they saw one person that, that would benefit from it. Um, however, Looking within the first hour, if you give it within the first hour, they saw a 2%, just a little over 2% survival advantage um, or a number needed to treat of 48, um, which was you know, obviously much better than 67. They only had to give it to 48 patients before they saw one person that benefited. So again, this was a positive trial for TXA, but don't get your hopes up. There are a bunch of other trials for TXA that are mixed at best. Uh, so matters one, was studied in the military population for those who required massive transfusion, 10 or more units of blood. 
MATTERS 2, very similar methodology. They saw big reductions in mortality, um, TXA with and without um, clotting factors or cryoprecipitate. However, the civilian trials did question the generalizability of CRASH-2 and these military trials. So one thing that's clear with TXA is that if you're on the side of the mountain in Afghanistan, or if you're in the desert in Iraq, and it's gonna be a long time to get you to the hospital and achieve control of your bleeding, TXA is likely gonna be very beneficial to you. So the military um, and TCCC have, have openly adopted this. And this makes sense. You know, If you're out in the middle of Western Maryland, in the mountains and it's gonna take us two hours to get you to the hospital. It very clearly makes sense um, in that setting. Where it's a little bit less clear is in the civilian uh, population. So if you're in Severna Park, if you're in Glen Burnie and, you know, or you're in Howard County, do those patients benefit from TXA or do they benefit from just getting to the hospital and achieving surgical control? So do all patients benefit? This is a mature trauma system like ours in Miami, Florida. 1,200 patients. TXA was given a little long, an hour and a half, um, at a median of an hour and a half. They actually saw increased mortality in the TXA group. So in contrast to that first one I, sh I showed you, 27% mortality versus 17%. Now you could say, well, they gave it to sicker patients. Um, and TXA, I will point out, was also sort of standard of care. They were giving it in, they're giving it in Miami, to all comers that it wasn't even part of a trial. So they just look back at their charts. So again, this might be the, a sicker patient population and there's really no difference between the groups. This is another one in a mature trauma system in France where they essentially saw no difference. Um, however, they did see improved survival in those that required transfusion in the ED. So a mixed trial at best in France. This one also in France supported safety and efficacy of TXA, um, some survival advantage when evacuation of surgical care was delayed, especially. So through all these papers, it's become clearer to me where you have delays in, in arrival to a trauma center to surgical care that are gonna be, that are gonna put you at more than an hour or two to the trauma center, it's, there's gonna be benefit there. So with every great drug or great intervention, there's always a downside. Um, as well. So um, this was looked at by the Pittsburgh group, again, a similar group to what looked at um, that first trial I showed you with plasma and packed red blood cells. In their TXA patients, they thought, saw a threefold increase in the risk of clots, uh, PE and DVT, and it remained high despite adjusting for mortality. In addition, they saw um, that there was no survival benefit in their TXA patients, and they recommended, again, more study. So to, to kind of wrap things up, because I know TXA is something that, that's talked about a lot in GEMS and, and various articles and so forth, most studies show a survival benefit for TXA when it's given in the less than one hour crowd, um, so less than an hour from, from injury. However, in the mature trauma systems, as you've seen, the data on mortality is mixed at best. I think where this has a role is in longer transport times. Uh, to trauma centers. So this is actively in discussion still at our protocol review committee as to how Maryland is going to roll this out. And it may be that it rolls out in the rural places first, um, where it takes us more than an hour to get to a, to a trauma center. But I think it's fair to say that more research is needed on, the, on individual patients and populations before we know that the risk and the benefit are, are either equal or, or the benefit is greater than the risk.
And um, I will say um, just in the remainder of the time that we have um, that the main focus of the talk is how to control bleeding, but there are a couple of sort of pearls that I'm gonna sprinkle in here on ventilation as well for your, your trauma patients. If you take nothing else home from today, um, hyperventilation is bad. Um, hyperventilation um, was used routinely up until the 90s, thought to improve the outcome. It actually worsens the outcome. The thought is that it reduces pressure in the head, which it does, but it does so by constricting the cerebral blood vessels. So you lower the pressure, but you also lower the blood that's available to the brain. You've got three things in the skull. This was taught to me very early on. You've got brain, blood, and CSF, and they're enclosed in a rigid vault rigid vault full of bone, uh, you know, surrounded by bone. <clears throat> so you can, you can control that intracranial pressure by throttling one of these three things. Um, this was looked at in a, in a very large trial. When I say hyperventilation is bad, um, failure to control hyperventilation after you've intubated somebody is associated with a six-fold increase in mortality. Um, and you'd ask, is it the intubation that leads to the increased mortality, or is it the hyperventilation that just occurs more easily? Um, so what's easier when you've got somebody that's, what's, who's the easier person to hyperventilate? Somebody that you've got to hold a seal on their face or somebody that's got a nice convenient, convenient endotracheal tube or nasotracheal tube that you can just bag without having to hold a seal. I, I would suspect it's the latter. You know, if you have somebody that's tubed, it's much easier for you to provide them with too much ventilation. So it's probably not the case that we're hurting people by intubating them. Um, but I would say that we need to be very cognizant of our ventilatory rate, especially once we have somebody intubated. And the trial that looked at this uh, sort of the best is called EPIC, uh, should be easy to remember. They looked at traumatic brain injury, and this was out in Arizona. Um, annually, this is, these are national figures here at first, 2.2 million ED visits um, tons of hospitalizations, billions in costs um, with traumatic brain injury. We, um, so traumatic brain injury, um, <clears throat> in contrast to hemorrhagic shock, is something that's much harder for us to treat. So out in Arizona, they did, um, they looked really strongly at their traumatic brain injury patients. And what they found, sort of the bottom line up front, is avoiding or treating the three H-bombs, uh, hypoxia, hypotension, and hyperventilation in the head injured patient is what we should focus our energy on. So they implemented statewide TBI guidelines and then looked at survival, both the hospital admission and the hospital discharge. Hospital admission is something we really own um, almost on our own. Uh, the ED owns a little piece of this as well. Hospital discharge is really variable um, depending on the hospital because the, they're gonna have them for days, we're gonna have them for a few minutes. Um, what they saw when they put in their guidelines, which essentially was avoid hypoxia, avoid hypotension, and avoid hyperventilation is increased survival of the hospital admission. Um, they did not see a, an increase in survival of the hospital discharge across the board. However, they did in the moderate to severe TBI group of people. So the severe TBI group of people, when, when these guidelines were applied, survival doubled. And in the severe intubated TBI patient, survival tripled. So again, that speaks volumes about when you go out on your next call, your next intubated patient, really keeping track 
of, of you know, how fast you're, you're ventilating them and how much you're ventilating them, um, because it does have a very real implication for their survival. So um, head back briefly to the case. You'll remember, again, this was the 50-year-old guy in the car that we cut apart. Um, he was extremely high risk for intra-abdominal injury for hemorrhagic shock, given that outward seatbelt sign and the mechanism. Um, we also want to not forget about the head injury, um, assessing for a head injury, because that will guide how much IV fluid we want to give him. Do we want to titrate to a blood pressure of 90 or a little bit higher to 110 if he has that head injury as part of the package? And then again, um, I will tell you actively this, um, this month, in fact, uh, the state police are going to put on a, um, a pilot protocol for blood um, that they plan to carry in the aircraft. And I would say that we're, we're very likely to see ground services coming behind, you know, very quickly behind that. Really the challenge with blood and plasma and, and, and all of it is that it's wonderful. It's just a matter of getting the logistics under control. Um, the cooler, the rapid warmers. And, and when I say logistics, it also has to be cycled back into a hospital at some point so that it doesn't, if it doesn't get used so that it doesn't go to waste. So it's not that these pre-hospital therapies are not good. It's that it's going to take us some time to ramp up the logistics behind them. So I just, um, this is probably the most important slide. If um, I know I have a dull voice and sometimes I can put people to sleep. So I apologize if I put you to sleep, um, but now's the time to wake up if you're asleep. And this is the most important slide for you to take home um, or, or take to your next shift. And this is, the first point is limiting IV fluids and resuscitation. So this is the concept of permissive hypotension, just titrating to a blood pressure of 90 or 110 if there's a head injury as part of the, the injury package. Um, this is something to be excited about, bullet number two, that we will see emerging pre-hospital therapies gradually make their way into the resuscitation uh, particularly for hemorrhagic shock patients. And then the last thing is something I really think you can take home or take to your next shift later today. When you've got that sick trauma patient, you want to avoid those three H-bombs and you're going to set your patient up for increased survival, not just to the trauma center, but overall. And with that, I will take any, uh, any questions that you have and really thank you for having me on. Very kind of you. All righty, so we hope that you enjoyed Dr. Chismar's lecture, and if you have any questions or comments, please send us your email or post them on our website at www.med4podcast.com. Stand by for our next release, which is a lecture from Dr. Margolis about treating LVAD patients. And that I'm pretty excited about, oh, so yeah, I can't wait. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. Yep. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks when we release that.